right. If you turn in your Bibles to Micah chapter 6, Micah chapter 6, Brother Carson's going to be speaking here in just a few moments, Micah chapter 6. I do have a couple of quick announcements here. Uh, Friday, we have Soul with the Teens at 345. Saturday at 10 o'clock, uh, we'd love to have you there for that. Uh, this coming Monday and Tuesday night, April 3rd and 4th, down at, uh, at uh, Light, Harbor Light Baptist Church down in West Haven, they have a soul winning conference. Pastor will be one of the speakers. There is a uh, flyer out on the bulletin board if you are interested in that. That is, again, Monday and Tuesday of next week. Um, there is a new addition to the church calendar. Um, we have used only two snow days all school year. So I sent a poll out to parents last week to, uh, de debating whether or not we should take Good Friday off. We're not Catholic, but a day off of school is a Good Friday, I think. Um, and we actually had 86% voted yes. So the school and church offices are closed for an extra day on uh, Good Friday. Again, we're not Catholic, but that makes it a great Friday in my book. Uh, so just if you if you are interested, if you do need uh, to get a hold of us, all of us pastoral staff, you can reach us uh, on our cell phones on that particular day. And then we do have some flyers out for Easter. Easter is about a week and a half away. Those are on the Lord's Supper table. Please grab those and pass those out. Uh, other than that, hopefully you have now figured out where Micah is at. Uh, Brother Carson. Micah chapter 6 in your Bibles this evening. It is one of the more obscure books of the Old Testament. It's one of 12 minor prophets uh, closing out the Old Testament there. Um, I heard a statement that I liked regarding the minor prophets, and it was that they are called the minor prophets because of their size, not because of their importance. And their importance is on par, obviously, with all the rest of God's word. But often, it is an area that is fairly easy to gloss over. It's been a section that I have been working through in my own personal study. It's been part of what I've been doing for the Academy's Bible class, and I've loved being able to dig into some of these passages that I may have skimmed over, glossed over in the past, and there are some fantastic truths in these pages. We're going to look at two passages uh, out of Micah, and then we'll be in another minor prophet towards the second half of the message. Um, but we're in Micah chapter 6, if you're there in your Bibles. A little bit of context, because it is a sort of unfamiliar book. Micah is one of 12 minor prophets. We already mentioned that. Um, Israel, under uh, Solomon's son, Rehoboam, if you're familiar with Jewish history, would split into two kingdoms. The southern kingdom, southern kingdom of uh, Judah, the northern kingdom of Israel. And Israel, the northern kingdom, the larger group, would go their entire history from that point on without having a single godly king. You read through the list in some of the other historical books, and what you see is one after another after another, they did evil in the sight of the Lord, one worse than the other. They did not have a single good king, and as a result, God would bring judgment upon them, and the Assyrian Empire would come in and destroy that northern kingdom of Israel. With that in mind, when we come to the prophet Micah, we come to a man whose ministry occurs very close to the end of that northern kingdom. In fact, by the time we get to chapter 6, where we'll be reading in just a moment, chapter 6 is only about 50 or so years before that Assyrian invasion, before the northern kingdom is uh, destroyed, is scattered, and all of that takes place. So we're very close to the final days of that northern kingdom of Israel. Judgment is coming very shortly. Micah chapter 6, as we'll see in just a moment, begins as a dialogue. It begins as a dialogue between God, first and foremost, 
and the people of Israel. God and the people of Israel through the prophet Micah. He's acting as a, a arbitrator, if you will, a go-between here, uh, speaking to Israel on behalf of God, speaking to God on behalf of Israel, bringing their response back. So with that context in mind, we're going to read and go through several verses here through the first half of the chapter. And there's one verse in particular that we'll be coming to uh, at the end of this section. Chapter 6, verse 1. If you're there in your Bibles, look there with me. It says, Hear ye now what the Lord saith. Arise, contend thou before the mountains, and let the hills hear thy voice. Hear ye, O mountains, the Lord's controversy, and ye strong foundations of the earth. For the Lord hath a controversy with his people, and he will plead with Israel. We're going to go through and break down a few of the verses uh, in this passage. In chapters 1 and 2, we see the beginning of this dialogue, and it is God speaking first. And what we see here is in verse 2, Hear ye, O ye mountains, and we see a key word here, the Lord's controversy. And so in setting, if you will, the stage for what we're going to be looking at, it's important to see what we are talking about now. There are plenty of things that we could say are a controversial topic. It's a word that uh, we use a lot. You may have a controversial opinion. Uh, there are plenty of hot topic issues that we would label as uh, controversial, where people would have strong differences of opinions about. That is not exactly how this word controversy is used in Micah chapter 6. It's a bit of an archaic form a bit of an archaic use of the word. I looked it up in Webster's 1828 Dictionary, and it actually is something a bit more legalistic. Webster defines it as a suit in law, a case in which opposing parties contend for their respective claims before a tribunal. So what we see here in Micah chapter 6 is God showing us a courtroom picture. God showing us, if you will, a legal drama here. Uh, he uses the word controversy because that is a legal term. It is showing uh, that there are two different parties with two issues that are going to be settled. And so what we see in this picture here, we see a courtroom picture, God as the prosecutor, Israel as the defendant. And as we read these two verses, the whole earth is the witnesses. Hear ye, verse 1, now what the Lord saith, Arise, contend thou before the mountains. And let the hills hear thy voice. Hear ye, O mountains, the Lord's controversy, and ye strong foundations of the earth. For the Lord hath a controversy with his people. God is calling the whole earth to be the witnesses, uh, the jury, if you will, in this issue between him and his people Israel. Verse 3. Now he turns his attention directly speaking to the Jews. O my people... What have I done unto thee, and wherein have I wearied thee? Testify against me. We see another legal term there, testify against me. God asks Israel, where have I wearied thee? What have I done unto, you, unto thee? Remember, the uh, northern kingdom of Israel, they were a wicked group of people. They went after idolatry, immorality, all of the different things. We think Ahab, Jezebel, some of the most wicked people that we see in the Old Testament. These were their leaders, and this was what the people were after. And God is coming before them saying, what did I do to cause you to turn the other direction. Um, hold your place here in Micah. We're going to turn to the book of Isaiah for just a very brief moment. Flip over uh, a few pages to the left to the book of Isaiah, one of the uh, major prophets in contrast to the minor prophets. 
um, we see this thought mentioned in Isaiah chapter 5. God asks Israel, Wherein have I wearied thee? Where did I wrong you? What did I do that you turned your back on me? What did I do that caused you to go the other direction? Isaiah chapter 5. God raises the same question in a different form, in a parable, if you will. Isaiah chapter 5, verse 1 says, Now I will sing to my well-beloved a song of my beloved, touching his vineyard. My well-beloved hath a vineyard in a very fruitful hill, and he fenced it and gathered out the stones thereof, and planted it with the choicest vine, and built a tower in the midst of it, and also made a winepress therein, and he looked that it should bring forth grapes, and it brought forth wild grapes. And now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge, I pray you, betwixt, between me and my vineyard, what could have been done more to my vineyard that I have not done in it? Wherefore, when I looked that it should bring forth grapes, brought it forth wild grapes. If you read through the rest of the chapter, God explicitly states that that vineyard is representative, is indicative of the people of Israel. And the idea there is that God had done so much for them. What more could God have done for the Jews? What more could God have done in giving them the promised land, in uh, bringing them in, in delivering them, in giving them the victory over their enemies? What more could God have done to prevent them from turning away from them? Back in Micah, Micah chapter 6, if you kept your place there. Verse 3, O my people, what have I done unto thee? Wherein have I wearied thee? Testify against me. What more could I have done for you? Verse 4, for I brought thee up out of the land of Egypt and redeemed thee out of the house of servants, and I sent before thee uh, Moses, Aaron, and Miriam. Verse 5. O my people, remember now what Balak, king of Moab, consulted, and what Balaam, the son of Beor, answered him from Shittim unto Gilgal, that ye may know the righteousness of the Lord. Continuing the thought from verse 3, God reminds them of all that he had done. He draws them back to Exodus. He draws them back reminds them of the plagues in Egypt, reminds them of the parting of the Red Sea, the deliverance from Pharaoh's army, reminds them how he provided for them in the wilderness and brought them through those 40 years, uh, protected them. We see Balak, king of Moab, Balaam. We know that story of how a God protected them from being cursed. And he reminds them of their history. He reminds them of all the times that God had provided, God had saved them, God had delivered them, he says, what else could I have done for you? A little bit of a side note here. This is not where we're going. But we see uh, in verse 5, Oh, my people, remember. I have that word circled in my Bible. And just two words next to it, uh, very simple words. Don't forget. Don't forget. Um, I think if each one of us were given the opportunity to share some of the things that God has brought us through. We could probably be here uh, for weeks on end as we shared some of those things. But it's very easy for me personally, uh, I'll speak for myself here, to get in the rut of everyday life and forget about some of the things that God has done in my past, how he's shaped me, how he's moved me, all of the different things that when I think about it, I can look back and see the hand of God. That's an important thing to take time to reflect on, to take time to remember on. That's sort of just a side note. But clearly the children of Israel had gotten to a point where they had forgotten what God had done, where they had glossed over, where they had moved on from the wonder of what God had done for them in the past. Just a little bit of a side note there. 
Verse 6. In Micah chapter 6, verse 6, verse 6, we see a change in the speaker. Verse 1 through 5 is God speaking to Israel. Verse 6, we now see his people reply. Verse 6, wherewith shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before the high God? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves of a year old? Verse 7, will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams or with ten thousands of rivers of oil? Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body, for the sin of my soul? Interesting to note, first of all, the Jews did not deny what God said. They didn't try and argue uh, that God had wronged them. They did not try and argue that God had in some way uh, pushed them away. They recognized that he was right in his claims. They recognized that he had done so much for them. They didn't try and argue with that. Rather, they ask what they can do to appease God. God clearly, as we see at the beginning, has that controversy, is contending with Israel. And Israel recognizes the validity of what is being brought before them, and their response is, what can we do to appease God? What can we do to make him happy? Is he after our sacrifices? Uh, we see verse uh, 6, shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves of a year old? Verse 7, will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams or with 10,000 rivers of oil? Sacrifices and offerings far beyond what was called for by the law of Moses. They said, is that what God's after? Is God after our uh, sacrifices? Is God after what we can give him? Is God after, it says, even uh, the, my firstborn for my transgression. Uh, what is God after? What can we do to appease God? What we can see from these two verses here, Israel's response, is that they had the wrong view of God. They had become so far from God that they were looking at God as somebody who was simply after the sacrifices, somebody who was simply after the rams and the oil and all the different things. They had the wrong view of God. Romans chapter 3, verse 20, you don't have to turn there. I will just read it quickly. It says, Therefore, by the deeds of the law, there shall no flesh be justified in his sight, for by the law is the knowledge of sin. They had lost sight of what that purpose was. They had lost sight of God's nature. And they said, what can we do? What actions can we take? What things can we give that will appease God? That's their response in verse 6 and 7. Verse 8 is the key thought in this passage. This is God responding in response to what the Jews had said. He hath showed thee, O man, what is good and what doth the Lord require of thee. Verse 6 and 7 is the Jews asking, what is God after? What does God want? What will, quote-unquote, appease God? Here it is. Here's what God requires. Verse 8. What doth the Lord require of thee but to do justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with thy God? Micah responds here as that go-between, that arbitrator, and he shows them what God is truly after. And this is a key thought here that I've been seeing all throughout the minor prophets is that God is always, always, always after the heart. God is always after the heart. Not after the rams, not after the sacrifices, but here's what God requires. To do justly, to love mercy, 
and to walk with God, to walk humbly with our God. Keep that thought in mind. Turn over to the book of Zechariah. I told you we'd be looking at two passages out of the Minor Prophets. You don't need to hold the passage in Micah. We're done there for the time being. Zechariah is a few books to the right. If you found Matthew, you went too far. It is right before Malachi, which is the last book of the Old Testament. Zechariah is one of the longest of the minor prophets with 14 chapters. I believe it's tied with Hosea, I think, for the longest of the minor prophets. And it is in a very different context than Micah. Micah was about 50 or so, a few decades before the fall of the northern kingdom. Assyria would come in, they would wipe them out, they would scatter them uh, across really the entire face of the world. But Judah, the southern kingdom, would survive for a few more centuries there. Um, they had a few good kings, men like Hezekiah, Jehoshaphat, Josiah, to name a few. Some kings who walked as David did after God. Um, and so Ju uh, Judah was spared that judgment for a few years, longer than their, their counterparts to the north, but they too would go after idolatry. They too would go after much of the same issues. And so judgment would come upon them in the form of the Babylonian Empire under King Nebuchadnezzar. And you can read through that in uh, the end of the historical books, Second Chronicles. You can read about that in Daniel, the carrying away of the uh, captives. And they would remain in captivity for about 70 years in Babylon before a remnant would be allowed to come back. And we read about that in Ezra and in Nehemiah. Zechariah is a prophet that is in the context of that group that has returned. Um, he is one of three prophets, the final three, Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi, all have a ministry to the remnant that has returned after that Babylonian captivity. And one of the major driving thrusts of these books is the rebuilding of the temple. The temple was destroyed under, Bab uh, under Nebuchadnezzar with the Babylonian army. It was destroyed. It was stripped of all the gold, all of the uh, accoutrements that Solomon had added. And one of the things that was a preeminent part of the rebuilding with the remnant was the reconstruction of the temple. Haggai, almost the entire book, deals with that. By the time we get to Zechariah chapter 7, they are in the middle of that construction project. They have about two or so years left until that is completed, until that is finished. And so they're in the middle of rebuilding, restarting, if you will, in Jerusalem. Look with you would with me in Zechariah chapter 7, verse 1. We'll read a few verses here and work through this passage as well. And it came to pass in the fourth year of King Darius that the word of the Lord came unto Zechariah in the fourth month, in the ninth month, fourth day, excuse me, of the ninth month, even in Chislu. When they had sent unto the house of God, that is the temple that is being rebuilt, when they had sent unto the house of God uh, Sherezer and uh, Regamelech and their men to pray before the Lord and to speak unto the priests, which were in the house of the Lord of hosts and to the prophets, saying, Should I weep in the fifth month, separating myself as I have done these so many years? What we see in this passage is Zechariah, as one of the prophets, is approached by these men with a question. Uh, they are seeking God's guidance. They are seeking an answer regarding a question. Specifically, verse 3 tells us about a 
time of fasting, a time of mourning in the fifth month. Uh, should I weep in the fifth month, separating myself as I have done these so many years? Now, just sort of a little bit of side note information. There was only one fast that was uh, particularly set apart in the law of Moses. You can read about that in Leviticus chapter 23, and that was for the Day of Atonement. That was for the time when the high priest would go in uh, to the holy of holy place, bring the blood to the mercy seat, and all of that with the Day of Atonement. The whole nation was told to uh, set aside that time as a period of fasting. There were a number of feasts, a number of different celebrations that were part of the Mosaic law, but that was the only fast. That is not the fast that is in uh, verse 3. The Jews had added four other fasts, and they were primarily memorializing the destruction of Jerusalem. The Jews that had gone into captivity looked back and uh, set apart certain days uh, to memorialize a certain part of the downfall, if you will. And this specific one, the one in the fifth month that is mentioned here, uh, commemorated the burning and the destruction of the temple. And so it was a fast, it was a time of mourning that looked back, reflected upon the destruction of the temple. With that in mind, it makes a little bit more sense why this question is being brought to Zechariah. They are asking whether or not with the rebuilding of the new temple, they should continue fasting and mourning over the destruction of the old one. Just a little bit of side note information there to give us a little bit more context, a little bit more understanding. That is what they are asking. They're saying, ask God for us as a prophet, should we keep doing this fast? Should we keep following through with this time of mourning, this time of sorrow here? Verse 4. Then came the word of the Lord of hosts unto me, saying, Speak unto all the people of the land and to the priests, saying, When ye fasted and mourned in the fifth and seventh month, that was another one of the fasts, even those 70 years, so it was something that was put into practice during the 70 years of captivity, uh, let's see, when ye fasted and mourned in the fifth and seventh month, even those 70 years, and look what God says here, did ye at all fast unto me, even to me. Verse 6, and when ye did eat, and when ye did drink, talking about the other feasts that were there, did ye not eat for yourselves and drink for yourselves? God doesn't necessarily give them a straight answer to their question. He doesn't say, yes, keep doing it, or no, keep doing it. He'll come to that later. I believe in chapter 8 he discusses that. But in this passage, he answers their question with a question. I always hate it when somebody does that to me. I'll ask a question, and I just want a straight answer, and somebody will come back with another question. I'm like, come on, just give me an answer. That is exactly what God does to the Jews here. But it's a very pointed question. It's a very telling question. He looks at them and says, you did those fasts, those feasts, all the different things for 70 years in captivity and for hundreds of years before them. But he asked the question in verse uh, 5, did ye at all do it unto me? Were you doing it for me? Or, as verse 6 says, did ye not eat for yourselves and drink for yourselves? Were you doing these things out of a heart for me, God is asking? Did you do them for me? Or were you merely just going through the motions for yourselves? 
And once again, like we saw in Micah, God is always after the heart. He is far more interested in why they were doing what they were doing than whether or not they were. He was not necessarily interested in, uh, in this context here saying, yeah, keep doing your fasts. He addresses that later. The first thing that has to be addressed is why they were doing it. Were they doing it for God or were they doing it for themselves? God has always been after the heart. This is not something that appears solely in the minor prophets, although we've looked at two different examples. This is something that we can see throughout the entire scripture. A few verses to turn there. Uh, you don't necessarily need to keep your place in Zechariah, uh, but if you would turn to a few different passages with me, turn backwards first to 1 Samuel. 1 Samuel chapter 15, very famous passage here. The idea that God is after our heart first is a very key one. And it's one that I've been seeing over and over and over through these minor prophets. And it's been a thought that has been so, so challenging in looking at myself and asking myself the question, why am I doing what I'm doing? 1 Samuel chapter 15, uh, if the context there is uh, Saul uh, disobeyed God when it came to offering a sacrifice that he ought not to have done. And Samuel the prophet, verse 22, 1 Samuel 15, 22, Samuel speaking to Saul says, Samuel said, Hath the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, and this is a very famous phrase here, to obey is better than sacrifice, to hearken than the fat of rams. He tells Saul, look, God is, would much rather have your obedience than your sacrifice. God would much rather have you to listen to him, to have that relationship with him, than your sacrifice. Turn to the book of Psalms. This thought that God has been after the heart, God is always after our heart, appears all throughout the Bible. Book of Psalms, chapter 50. Psalm chapter 50, if we look at verse 7, it's not necessarily the verse we're looking at, but it shows us that God is the one who is speaking here. Hear, O my people, verse 7 says, and I will speak, O Israel, I will testify against thee. I am God, even thy God. It's God talking here. Look, if you would, at verse number 12, and we could, we could read through several passages here, but the key thought Look in verse 12, God speaking, If I were hungry, I would not tell thee, for the world is mine and the fullness thereof. Will I eat the flesh of bulls or drink the blood of goats? The uh, rhetorical answer to that is no. And here's what God is after instead. Verse 14, Offer unto God thanksgiving and pay thy vows unto the Most High. The previous verses talk about how uh, God is not after their sacrifices. Uh, verse 9 says, I will take no bullock out of thy house, nor he goats out of thy fold. The idea that God is not after our sacrifices because he needs them. This is the passage where we get the phrase, he owns the cattle upon a thousand hills. He says, if I needed something, it's mine. I created it. I don't need you to be giving sacrifices unto me for my sake. He says, rather, verse 14, offer unto God thanksgiving and pay thy vows unto the Most High. He says, I'd rather have that relationship with you and then let everything else filter into, pray, 
filter into place. One chapter over, Psalm 51. One of the most famous psalms is David's uh, psalm of repentance following his sin with Bathsheba. We get that from the heading there. Uh, but Psalm chapter 51, in David's psalm of repentance, look at verse 16. For thou desirest not sacrifice, else would I give it. Thou delightest not in burnt offering. Here's what God is after instead. Verse 17, the sacrifices of God are of a broken spirit. A broken and a contrite heart, O God, thou wilt not despise. David said, if you simply wanted offerings to restore our relationship, I'd give them. I'd give, he was the king. He could have given hundreds of sheep. He said, if that's what you wanted, I would have done it. But that's not what you were after. He's after that repentant heart, the broken and contrite heart. That, uh, he says, O God, thou wilt not despise. Turn over to the book of Isaiah. We were already there just a moment ago. Isaiah chapter 1. Again, this thought appears all throughout the Bible. And as I've been looking through the minor prophets, I've just simply been seeing it pop up more and more. Isaiah chapter 1. Verse 11. And we're not going to read the entire passage here, but verse 11. To what purpose... God is speaking here. We get that from verse 10. To what purpose is the multitude of your sacrifices unto me, saith the Lord? I am full of the burnt offerings of rams and of the fat of fed beasts. I delight not in the blood of bullocks or of the lambs or of he goats. Skip down uh, the next several verses. Talk about that fact. Verse 13 says, Bring no more vain or empty oblations. Incense, part of their, their worship there, is an abomination. The new moons and Sabbath, the callings of assembly, I cannot away with it. It is iniquity. Even these solemn meetings, verse 14, your new moons, your appointed feasts, my soul hateth. They are a trouble for me. Look at verse 16. This is what God is after instead. Wash you, make you clean, put away the evil of your doings from before mine eyes. Cease to do evil, learn to do well. Seek judgment, relieve the oppressed, judge the fatherless, plead for the widow. Verse 18, come now, let us reason together, saith the Lord. Though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be white as snow. They, though they be red like crimson, they shall be as wool. Verse 17 sounds very familiar, uh, very similar to Micah, where he said, What doth the Lord require of thee but to do uh, justly, love mercy, walk humbly with thy God. He said, I'm tired of you doing all these sacrifices, going through the religious motions, and at the same time, having an unrepentant heart, having a wicked heart. He says, fix your heart first. Fix your, your heart first, and everything else will follow. Wash you, make you clean. Verse 18, come now, let us reason together, saith the Lord. He says, let's deal with your heart. And then we can deal with the actions. Uh, Isaiah chapter 58, we're not going to turn there for sake of time. The entire chapter, it's only 14 verses, deals with a very similar issue to Zechariah, specifically in the area of feasts and different things like that. And God says your feasts, your fasts, all these different things, they become empty. They become worthless because you're just going through the uh, religious, the outward Motions. Matthew chapter 15, only a couple more verses here. Matthew chapter 15. This is only a, a cursory list that I compiled here. There are many, many other instances. Matthew chapter 15, we have Christ speaking here. 
I think I may have gotten the wrong verse here. Um, let's see, let's see. I'll have to find the, uh, oh no, there it is. It's Matthew chapter 15, verse 8. I just put a incorrect one there. Matthew chapter 15, verse 8. Says this people, referring to the Jews, draweth nigh unto me with their mouth and honoreth me with their lips, but their heart is far from from me. We know the harshest words that Jesus spoke was regarding the Pharisees, the hypocrites, those who went through all the outward motions. Jesus himself said, What they tell you to do, do, because they are teaching you uh, what was in the law of Moses. But don't act like them. They're hypocrites. They they say one thing, and they live another way. He says, these people honoreth me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. Uh, Romans chapter 6, verse 17, the last verse here. Paul writing says, but God be thanked uh, that ye were servants of sin, but ye have obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine which was delivered you. This is a thought that we see over and over and over again from Samuel to David to Isaiah to Micah, the prophets, to Christ, to Paul, the idea that the key thought that God is after is always our heart. He looked at the Jews, and he looked at what they were doing, and they were going through the sacrifices, they were going through the feast days, they were going through the fasting times, the morning times, all of the different things that were part of the Jewish custom, and he looked at that in all those different places that we looked at and said, that's great, but your heart is far, far from me. You're going through the outward motions thinking that is what will appease me, Micah 6, where we looked at. The people were looking what they could do to appease God. He says, I'm not after your sacrifices for sacrifice's sake. I'm not looking for you to give things to me because I need them. Uh, David wrote in Psalm 50, uh, we know the verse, the cattle on a thousand hills are God's. He says, I don't need these because I need them. I'm after your heart first and foremost. And when God is after our heart, we need to make sure that our heart is right in everything else we do. This is, again, I mentioned it before, this is a thought that has been, uh, I've been constantly seeing come up over and over and over again throughout my study of the minor prophets. And I just have a few very uh, brief, simple thoughts uh, that I drew out of these. First, I've mentioned it several times. God is always after the heart. And that has just been, if you will, the, the theme that I've seen over and over through the Minor Prophets. If I was to apply one theme to it, that would probably be it. Um, but God is after the heart. He's not interested so much in our outward actions with a hypocritical heart behind them. He's interested in having that walk with us, interested with having that relationship with us, and then allowing that, to affect our outward actions. God is always after the heart. Secondly, religious actions without a heart for God behind them are empty. For the Jews in their day, it was the sacrifices, it was the, the Mosaic law, it was the temple worship, it was the feast days, it was the fasting days. That was what they had. And without the heart for God behind it, all of those different things were empty. Thankfully, we don't have all of those same things today. I don't think I would uh, very much enjoy coming 
to a church and having a lamb or a uh, cow being slaughtered every Sunday. I don't think I would find that all that appealing. We don't have all of those things. Uh, thank God for that. Christ sacrificed himself. We no longer have to go through all of those things. But it's very easy, and I'll speak for myself here, but it's very easy for me to fall into the trap of going through uh, quote-unquote religious outward trappings and not even considering what my heart is behind it. I've been in church many years. I know when to sit up, stand up. I know when to sit down. I know when we open the Bible to read. I know when we sing a song. Um, you know, I know all of the things to do to make myself on the outward appear to have uh, that walk with God, but he knows very well when it's simply a show. He knows very well when I am far from him, I'm far from having that relationship with God that I should be, and just as the Jews, uh, God uh, rebuked them for going after that outward actions without having that heart, my actions, whether it's teaching a Sunday school class, whether it's soul winning, whatever the case might be, my actions, if there's not the heart for God behind them as well, they're just as empty as those Jewish sacrifices and feasts were without God behind them. Religious actions with a, without a heart for God behind them are empty. They're vain. There's no substance to them. They're like the Pharisees in Jesus' day who were saying and doing and living and dressing all the right ways, but Jesus said their heart is far from me. Thirdly, and it's not necessarily a point, but it's more of a thought, and it's this, and it was a thought that came to me as I was going through that Zechariah passage. We talk often about hearing, well done, thou good and faithful servant from Christ uh, at that judgment seat, our, our works what we've done in our body will be taken account. And what a wonderful thing it would be to hear that well done, thou good and faithful servant. But here's the thought that occurred to me. Rather than hearing well done, thou good and faithful servant, I wonder how often God could look at my life and look at all the times I've gone soul winning, taught Sunday school, fill in the blank, what have you, and like the Jews in Zechariah's day, he would say to me, were you doing them for me? Did you ever do them for me? Or were you just doing them because that's what was expected of you? Just doing them to go through the motions. Just do them because that's where you were and everybody else was doing it, and so you did it as well. Just doing it because it's what, you know, everybody else at church was doing. How many times in my life could God look at me, look at my actions and say, were you doing them for me? Or were you just doing them for yourself? Zechariah, we looked at it. The Jews came saying, hey, should we keep this fast going? We're rebuilding the temple. Our situation is changing. Should we keep this ceremony up? And God looked back at them and said, you were never doing it with, for me to begin with. You were never doing it for me uh, from the beginning. So you're asking me whether or not you should keep going when you weren't even doing it for me. And that is a sobering thought for me. That is a sobering thought when I consider um, standing before God and him looking at me and saying, you did the right things, yeah, absolutely, but your heart wasn't in it. Your heart wasn't there. Your heart was far from me like, like uh, the Jews in Jesus' day. And that thought 
of having that said to me, you know, it's very easy for you to fool me and me to fool you. Um, you can look at me and I can look at you and we're here at church on a Wednesday night and we've got our Bibles, we're praying, we're going through a prayer meeting, you know, I can see you Sunday singing all of the different things and you see the same thing in me. But I can't see your heart, you can't see my heart. It is impossible for us to fool God. God knows immediately whether or not what we're doing is something that we are doing out of ritual, out of routine, or something that we are truly doing for him. And it's a sobering thought, but it's also an encouraging thought. Because that means that just as much as God knows when I'm not doing it for him, he knows when I am doing it for him. And he knows when my heart is right. And he knows when our relationship is strong. And I've been walking with God, as Micah says, and I've been doing all of those things and then what an awesome thing it is to be able to serve God from the heart, to be able to serve God and do the different things and know that he is pleased because I talked with him this morning. I've been talking with him as I've been doing it. On all these different things, I have that walk with God. And what an encouraging thought it is that God knows our heart and he knows when we are serving him from the heart. And that has been a challenge for me as I've been considering this thought throughout the Minor Prophets. I'm almost done studying through. I'm up through, I believe, the last chapter of Zechariah at the moment. Um, and I, I've been seeing this over and over again since the beginning of the year. And it's been a thought that has been a, a, a burden on my heart, something that I've been meditating on, uh, trying each and every day to say, God, I want to do this for you today. Everything I do, the way that I live, the things that I say, I want to do it for you so that you could look at me and say, yeah, your heart is after me, rather than looking at me and saying, were you doing it for me? Were you living for me? Were you teaching for me? Were you uh, fill in the blank with what have you, whatever area may be popping into your mind, what area that you have the ability to influence in? And so just this thought, of God always being after the heart, I believe is such a key one. And if we allow it into our lives, it will change the way we do everything. It will change the way uh, that I teach Bible. It will change the way uh, that you know I teach the classes. It will change the way that I, I study my Bible. It will change the way that I live with my wife. It will change the way I teach son. And it could go through every area of our lives when we truly have that heart for God first and allow it to flow out into every area of our lives, I truly believe it will, would be a life-changing thing in our lives rather than simply going through the empty motions, simply going through the motions, what's expected of us, what we've always done. Or are we going to allow God to have our heart first and then change uh, our actions as a result. This has been a thought, I've mentioned it before. I don't know if this is simply what God has laid on my heart. I don't know if this is simply for me this evening, but it's been a thought that uh, has been pressing on me, and when Pastor asked uh, that, or when he let me know that he would be gone this evening, this passage in Micah immediately came to mind, and as I was putting this together, it was just another reminder Make sure that my heart first and foremost is right with God. I'm walking humbly with him, as Micah says, 
and then to simply let him work out in every other area of my life through me. Allow him to do the actions. Allow him to say the words. Allow him to move me, to guide me in every other area of my life. Um, And that thought has just been in my mind continually for the past several months um, of just allowing God to have me first and foremost. Allowing God to have my heart and not simply, not simply go through and do the things simply because that's what I've always done. And that thought of standing before God and having him say, you lived your life doing all of these things, but were you doing them for me? That's not at all what I want to hear. I want to hear that well done, good and faithful servant. I want to hear that when he looks at what I do in my life, in my body, that it is first and foremost always done for him. Let's pray this evening.